Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman begins a new sermon series titled, Asking for a Friend. Today's message, how can anyone believe that there's a loving God in a world of so much suffering? Here's Dr. Tom Goodman. Well, we begin a series today called Asking for a Friend. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be taking a look at the subjects and the questions that non-believers often ask about our faith. Topics like suffering and intolerance and miracles and hell, the question of justice, the question of sexuality. Now, these are topics that we'll be covering, as I said, over the next couple of months on Sunday morning. And I'm hoping that this series will be helpful for non-believers, but I also believe it will be helpful for those of us who are believers. The title of this series is Asking for a Friend, and you've seen that meme on social media. I'm sure whenever you've seen that question come up, you know that it's a joke. The person who's asking the question is really asking it for himself as well as for somebody else. And so these things that trouble, these things that vex non-believers sometimes trouble and vex believers as well. And I think these will be some important topics that we'll be covering over the next couple of months. Now, today we begin the series with this question. How could anyone believe there's a loving God in a world of so much suffering? The atheist writer Sam Harris says that in the face of suffering and catastrophe, you really only can conclude one of three things. He writes, God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. For Harris and for those who believe like him, the fact that pain exists means that God doesn't. But though many believe this solves the problem of pain, it doesn't solve the problem of the problem of pain. What I mean is, we still feel this sense of injustice, this sense of outrage, this sense of offense that this life we're in isn't the way it ought to be. Now, where do we get this sense that pain and suffering is not the way things ought to be? Taking God out of the equation might, for some people, solve the problem of pain, but it doesn't solve the problem of the problem of pain. That's what C.S. Lewis was saying in one of his writings. He said that the problem of pain led him into belief. Now, you heard me right. For some people, they believe that the problem of pain cancels out belief. It leads you into atheism. For him, it led him out of atheism and into belief. Here's what he wrote. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Now, here's what Tim Keller said in a more updated version of that same argument in his New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God. He said, modern objections to God are based on a sense of fair play and justice. People, we believe, ought not to suffer and be excluded and die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are perfectly natural. On what basis, then, does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong and unjust 
and unfair. Taking away belief in God does not really solve the problem of pain. Even worse, what it does is it takes away resources that you need to deal with the problem of pain. Now, in the passage that Theresa read to us just a moment ago, did you notice how the Apostle Paul dealt with his heartbreak? Did you notice how he dealt with his, his sense of alienation and the mistreatment that other people placed upon his life? He situated his story in the midst of the Christian story. Because you see, really, when it comes to the question of pain and suffering, Christianity gives us more story than syllogism. And this is what the, Harvard, the late Harvard professor was saying, uh, William Stuntz, he, he wrote this, philosophers and scientists and law professors, my line of work, he says, are not in the best position to under, understand the Christian story. He says, musicians and painters and writers of fiction are much better situated because our faith is a painting so captivating that you cannot take your eyes off of it. Our faith is a love song so achingly beautiful that you weep each time you hear it. At the center of that painting, that song, stands a God who pursues us as lovers pursue one another. It sounds too good to be true, and yet it is true. So I found in the midst of pain and heartache and cancer myself. What is this story that Christians tell each other? If you've been attending Hillcrest for any length of time, you've heard me share this three-act play over and over again. And one of the reasons I share it over and over again is because it's still true, just as when you first heard me share it. And what I want to do is repeat it over and over again from time to time to develop a sort of spiritual muscle memory so that when you face your time of pain and heartache and hardship, you'll know exactly how to situate your story in the midst of God's big story. God's big story is a tale of, told in three acts. Act one, you could label as creation. We experience this world in terms of hardship and pain and suffering not because God made a mistake in the way he created this world. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us that God created this world and when he stepped back and looked at what he had created, he did not say, oops, I made a mistake. He said, it is good. So why do we experience heartache? Why do we experience suffering? Not because God made a mistake in the way he created this world. After Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which talk about the creation of the world, Genesis 3 tells us that something unique happened. Sin, rebellion, opposition against the creator uh, somehow twisted or warped and messed up our experience with this world. Genesis 3 does not tell us how that happened. It tells, tells us that that happened. That from now on we experience this world not as the way that God intended it to be, because sin and rebellion and opposition to God messed up the way we experience this world. That's act one. But then comes act two. Act two could be labeled cross because the Bible tells us in the gospel stories that God entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the story we tell every Christmas time. It's the story of the incarnation. The incarnation is a theological word that means that God entered into this creation he created. The creator of the Sea of Galilee pressed his footprints into the sand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he experienced everything that we experience. Supremely, though, he didn't just experience it to identify with us. He experienced it to take away that 
which created the ruin of the world. Remember I said that after Genesis 1 and 2, there was Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us the story of our sin, our rebellion against our Creator, which somehow messed up the world that we experience. And so in order to fix the world we experience, that sin which ruined it needed to be taken away, and it was taken away by the work of the cross. And so Act 2 tells us that the God who created this world good, the God who is heartbroken to see what a mess this world had become because of our sin and rebellion, nevertheless did not abandon us but entered into the mess of this world and carried away the sin and the ruin that sin created on his shoulders in the person of his son Jesus on the cross. That's Act 2. And that leads us ultimately to Act 3. Act 3 could be labeled crown. What is a crown? A crown is something that a king wears to symbolize his authority, to symbolize his rule, to symbolize his power. The Bible tells us after Jesus died on the cross, three days later, he rose again in victory, in victory over death, in victory over the sin he carried into the grave. And the Bible tells us that he has departed, but he will return again one day. And when he returns, he will bring to culmination, he will bring to completion the process that he has already started on his resurrection, the process of remaking the world into the way it ought to be. Now, this is the Christian story. And you notice that uh, in uh, what the Apostle Paul has to say here in this passage we're looking at is his way of fixing and situating the story of his suffering and the story of his pain into the context of this story, this three-act play that I just laid out. Karen Blixen, who was the author of books like Out of Africa and Babette's Feast, said, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. Your sorrow can be carried. It can be dealt with as you put it into the story, this three-act play that I have talked about. And you have to forgive us, I think, sometimes if we get frustrated with you as a non-believer because you're not ready to buy into this story, you're not ready to accept this story because of all the resources we know could be yours if you, if you finally accepted this story. Sometimes we get frustrated about that, and like I said, you'll have to forgive us if that happens. I sense some of that frustration in uh, Christian Wyman's memoir, My Bright Abyss. Wyman is a celebrated American poet, and uh, when he was given a terminal cancer diagnosis, he returned back to the Christian faith that he had abandoned when he entered into adulthood. And he wrote about that in his book, his memoir, My Bright, My Bright Abyss. And uh, you notice this frustration in his voice when he says this. On the radio, I hear a famous novelist praising his father for enduring a long, difficult dying without, quote, ever seeking relief in religion. It is clear from the son's description that the father was in absolute despair and that as those cold waters closed over him, he could find nothing to hold on to but his pride and drowned clutching that nothing. This is to be admired, that we carry our despair stoically into death, that even the utmost anguish of our lives does not change us. How astonishing it is, the fierceness with which we cling to beliefs that have made us miserable or to beliefs that prove to be so obviously inadequate when extreme suffering comes. So it's not only illogical to disbelieve the Christian story. It also robs you, it takes away from you resources that you could use in the Christian story that would enable you to deal with pain and suffering and hardship. 
What are those resources that I'm talking about? You can write these things down in your sermon notes. There are three of them. Here's the first one. The Christian story reminds us that God loves us. The Christian story reminds us that God loves us. It's not just that he loves us from a distance. As I said, he entered into our world of pain and suffering and experienced it as we experience it. Of all the world's religions, there's only one religion that says that our creator, that our judge, that our ruler experienced the world the way we experience the brokenness of this world. In today's scripture text, Paul reflected on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and he explained how it helped him deal with his own suffering and his own hardship. Take a look at it again. We are hard-pressed on every side, he said, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Why does he have this confidence? He goes on to say, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We do not lose heart. You see, we often want to ask the question, why this suffering? And the Christian story may not immediately tell us what the answer is, but the Christian story does tell us what the answer isn't. It isn't because God doesn't care. When we experience suffering and hardship and rejection by others, it isn't a sign that God doesn't care because God entered into this experience himself. God entered into this experience as Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, I quoted earlier, and he wrote a number of nonfiction books, but he also wrote a number of fiction books. And he wrote a series of children's books called the Chronicles of Narnia. And you may be only familiar with one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he wrote six others in this series. And in one of the other books, The Magician's Nephew, a, a boy named Diggory Kirk stands before Aslan at one point. Aslan is the great lion of Narnia. He is a, sort of the Christ figure in the Narnia stories. And Diggory is hoping that the lion will enable him to bring back something into his world that would heal his mother. Diggory begs the lion, please won't you give me something that can cure my mother? And then he looks at Aslan's face, and here's how Lewis describes the scene. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. The lion of Judah knows our pain. He suffered it all himself personally. And as we meditate upon God's suffering in Christ, God's loss in Christ, we can say, he knows what I'm going through. I'm not alone in this universe. That is a great resource that is ours in the Christian story. So the Christian story reminds us that God loves us. Here's the second thing the Christian story does. The Christian story convinces us that there's a purpose. Notice what I I didn't say, I didn't say we will always know the purpose in this life. But just because we don't know what the purpose of our suffering is immediately doesn't mean there is no purpose. We want to ask the question, if God exists, why do bad things happen to good people? 
And then we read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, and we see really, really bad things happening to a really, really good person. But ringing through God's big story is that God was using the suffering of his son in a way that would bring about the redemption of the world. And in today's text, Paul reflects on that truth, and he realizes that in some small way, some imitative way, his own suffering can be used by God in this process of redeeming the world. Here's what he wrote. For we who are alive and we're always being given over to, the, over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. We may not know, at least in this present time, in this present life, why we go through the things that we do, but we can trust if we situate our stories into the context of God's big story, we can trust that just as God used the suffering of Jesus for the redemption of the world, he can use our suffering in some small imitative way for, this, for the accomplishment of that redemption in this world as well. The Christian story gives us that resource. You lose that resource when you disbelieve the Christian story. Here's a third resource the Christian story gives us. The Christian story assures us that God wins the war. The resurrection of Jesus was the start of God's counteroffensive against all that has gone wrong with this world. And upon Christ's return, that counteroffensive accelerates and culminates until all that is broken gets fixed, all that is wrong gets set right. And how does that truth affect the Apostle Paul in this passage that Theresa read to us a moment ago? In today's text, Paul wrote, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. He knew that whatever was broken about his life now would be fixed. It would be restored. It would be recompensed in a glorious way. So we live in the context of a three-act play, creation, cross, and crown. And that Christian story gives us some great resources. It reminds us that God loves us. It convinces us that there is a purpose to our suffering, even if we don't know it now, and it assures us that God wins the war. If you take away belief in God because of pain and suffering, not only does it not solve the problem of the problem of pain, because it doesn't tell you why we feel this sense that life ought not to be this way, but it also takes away the resources that you need to help you get through a life of pain and suffering. But the Christian story not only tells us why we feel things are not the way we feel they ought to be, but the Christian story also gives us resources to deal with a life as it often ought not to be. A Vietnamese woman found those resources when she needed them. Phan Thi Kim Phuc is in her mid-50s today. But for decades, she's been known around the world simply as the napalm girl. Nine-year-old child in this picture, depicted in the 1972 Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph that became an icon of the Vietnam War. Now, for years, Kim suffered not only the recovery from the burns that left scars on her back and on her arms, but she also suffered emotionally. She suffered 
from bitterness toward those who dropped the bombs. She suffered from loneliness and a culture that shied away from people who suffered. And she suffered a constant temptation to end it all. She entered adulthood deeply scarred not only physically, but emotionally. And she wanted answers as a young woman, and so she went into the Saigon Library. And she pulled down numbers of books about the world's religions, trying to find out what they had to say about her suffering. She pulled down books about Baha'i and Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and a religion unique to Vietnam called Khao Dai. And then she found a New Testament, and she spent an hour reading the story of Jesus. She later wrote, I had never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. I turned over this new information in my mind as a gem in my hand, relishing the light that was cast from all sides. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. Not long after that, she walked into a Christmas service in a church in Saigon, and she wrote, There in a small church in Vietnam, mere miles from the street where my journey had begun amid the chaos of war, I invited Jesus into my heart. When I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. I was finally at peace. My prayer is that you, in the midst of your pain and suffering, wouldn't walk away from God and his story, but that you would walk toward him and experience all the resources that God and his story has to offer. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman continues his series, Asking for a Friend, with a sermon titled, Does Christianity Lead to an Intolerance of Other Beliefs? I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.